When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Jackie Bailey, who's been on the show before. She's a brilliant guest, but she's here today specifically to talk about her role on the Scottish Parliament Committee on the Scottish Government Handling of Harassment Complaints. That committee published its report the other day. They concluded by majority decision, and we talk about that, that the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, did mislead the Scottish Parliament. I've put a link to that report in the blurb or the show notes, whatever you want to call them. So wherever you get your podcast, click on the, the note element of this show, and the link is there. I've also placed a link to the other reports, that came out this week. This is the report um, by Mr. Hamilton QC, uh, the independent advisor on the Scottish Ministerial Code. Uh, he is completely independent. He's non-party political. That report is there, should you wish to read that as well. And he concluded that the First Minister did not breach the Ministerial Code. Now, there are loads of other conclusions that run through both reports. So they're both worth reading in full, although I am aware that last week... I put the Strategic Defence Intelligence and Foreign Policy Review uh, up, and that was a heck of a read. So well done to any of you that did that. I don't want this show to become one that's got homework and a reading list, and you feel that you need to read that to understand it. You don't need to read those things because Jackie is here to take us all through it. Now, of course, you can't take politics out of these discussions, but Jackie served on that committee. I think it's fair to say that she was one of the more impressive members of the committee. Certainly, if you watched any of the televised proceedings, was very good at holding people who came to that committee to account and interrogating them and, and getting answers. So I'm interested in her personal experience of being on that committee. What runs through both reports is a real frustration uh, of the Hamilton report and of this committee report of not being able to get the information they wanted. So we talk about that. How hard is it to reach a conclusion on such an important thing on a committee that, that you know, this, this is the, the most scrutinised committee in the history of the Scottish Parliament, probably, when you can't get the information you need, how hard is it to do that job? And the reality of doing that job, especially as on a committee, there's a group of you, you probably broadly get on, even though you're split along party lines, and how those divisions play out, what sort of conversations you have. How do you prepare for those big sessions with people like Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon? And of course, if you watched any of the exchanges, you'll have seen the relationship or the interaction between specifically the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and Jackie Bailey as a member of that committee. The First Minister interacted with her in a way that she didn't interact, doesn't seem to interact with other members of that committee. So we talk about that. So it's, this is a really good in the round uh, analysis. Uh, well, and Jackie just sharing her personal experience of being really close to the centre of all this stuff, trying to get the information, trying to reach conclusions on the best available evidence and the frustrations with the whole process. Now, obviously, Jackie is a Labour politician and... Uh, the Labour Party do not agree with the SNP on a number of things, one big thing in particular. And we talk about the politics of that, of how hard it is for all sides to discharge their duties in a situation like this without being tempted towards the politics of it. Now, how much you can ever truly, honestly say hand on heart, you can enter into this without any political motive or without your politics somehow coming into it is, is, is a moot point. But Jackie is really, really good at talking us through the experience of being on the committee, the committee's experience, and a fair summary, really, of, of 
um, her relationship with other members of the committee and, and everything that played out. So there's a whole load of things going on. Typically, with this issue, with these individuals, this doesn't look like it's the end of it because just as we hit record, it emerged that Alex Salmond has announced he intends to take the permanent secretary to court and the daily record to court. So that broke just as we started talking. So we talk about that a bit at the start. Uh, we also address the fact that it wasn't that long ago that I spoke to Jackie, but so much has happened since. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. You're quite right, Matt. It seems like an age ago that I last spoke to you. And in that time, it feels as if I've aged by about, um, you know, 20 years easily. Yeah, I didn't want to mention yes, that. It, 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 would, it would appear um, that the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, has just made an announcement to the effect that he intends to take Leslie Evans, the permanent Secretary of Scotland, the senior civil servant, um, to court. Now, I don't know what, what over. Um, no doubt those details will be released in due course. Um, but secondly, he is also reporting um, to the police the leak to the daily record. Now, that, of course, there were two leaks. The first one concerned the fact that the Scottish government um, were investigating him for sexual harassment. Um, and the second one, a few days later, actually detailed the case of one of the female civil servants that came forward. Um, very damaging leaks, um, both to Mr. Salmon, but in particular to one of the complainants whose details were released in the public domain. Um, leaking to the daily record in that fashion is of course a criminal action, which is why I believe he's reporting it to the police. The ICO investigated at the time, um, and they discovered there were about 20 odd people, I think, um, that, that had received a copy of the report. They were within the First Minister's office, um, some of her special advisors, and then wider in the civil service. So it's a very small group of people who had access to what was up to that point a private report. Clearly very sensitive. This is so hard for people to follow about what leak people are talking about, what report people are talking about. But we are all left with the spectacle of the last First Minister of Scotland taking the current First Minister of Scotland and her government, her regime, through the courts. And it seems like this is happening in waves now. There's this initial exchange. Now there's legal action about something else. People are going to be sat here thinking, what next? I mean, it has been extraordinary. You're, you're right about the complexity of it. Um, some of the commentators in the press have described it as a psychodrama. Um, you know, for, for those people not up to the minute with, with every twist and turn. It, it feels a bit like people going through a divorce, a very, very messy divorce. And you know you couldn't find two people closer in politics than Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. She was his protege. He was the, the first minister that took them through um, the independence referendum. Um, she was his deputy and she took over from him. But it just seems to be that relationships went south shortly after, after he left office. Um, and I think I would pinpoint the point at which he started hosting a programme for Russia Today, that the, the relationship just seemed to fall apart and they had very little to do with each other. Um, and then along came uh, the Me Too movement. And on the back of that, the First Minister wanting a policy to ensure that sexual harassment was dealt with in the Scottish government. I absolutely support and understand that. What I don't understand though, and this is what the committee tried to grapple with is, why was it rushed through? Why did it take just a month to write? Why didn't they get external expertise, which they've done now, three years later, why didn't they do it at the time? Engage a QC, an employment lawyer, somebody to talk you through it. But instead it was rushed through and it was flawed as a, as a consequence of that. Now you're a Labour MSP. The SNP are your, your sworn opponents. You don't just want to replace them as the government of Scotland. You fundamentally disagree with the values of separating the UK. So even within that context, do you have any sympathy for Nicola Sturgeon? Do you think, oh, is there part of you just as a human being that thinks, well, this is getting silly now? You know, he's tried or there has been an attempt to try and remove her 
perhaps using some of this as an excuse, it hasn't worked and we need to move on. There's been lots of accusations of um, the committee members being partisan and somehow we are weaponizing this against Nicola Sturgeon. Um, the, the reality I have to say is, is different. It's slightly more boring, I'm sure, because um, people would, would love a good conspiracy. But, but the truth is, um, we sat as a committee, there were four SNP members, one independent, one Labour, myself, one Liberal Democrat and two Tories, okay? And we waded through hours and hours and pages and pages of evidence. We went where the evidence took us. And actually the majority of recommendations arising from the committee report were entirely unanimous. And that's got lost in the ether as people fight backwards and forwards with each other. And I have to say to suggest that five opposition members would all work together when we don't work together in the chamber is quite extraordinary too. And, you know, just for a minute, think about the four SNP members, whatever evidence they were presented with, there was no way on earth that they would be criticizing their own first minister. It just wouldn't happen. So there's a lot of nonsense being spoken about how partisan the committee were. If you choose to delve into the more than 200 pages of our report, you will see we've done, I think, not a bad job given the obstacles put in our place. Um, and as I say, for the majority of recommendations, until it came to looking at the ministerial code, the report was unanimous. And I really hope the Scottish government take this seriously because you know, at the end of the day, everybody keeps saying this, it's easy to say. It's easy to say that actually at the heart of this, there are two female civil servants who came forward and complained and they have been comprehensively let down. That's easy for, for us all to say. What's harder is to understand what went wrong and how the government needs to fix it. And therefore, my interest is in what action they're going to take to make sure that this can never happen again. We'll go through some of your findings in a second and perhaps how they contrast with uh, Mr Hamilton's findings. But just on the committee and the relations within the committee then, because it's really easy to look at it and go, well, the SNP members supported their government and the SNP opponents, surprise, surprise, um, <laughs> were against the government on, on the key findings. Um, were there arguments? Did you ever say to each other? Would they say to you, oh, this is just political? And would you say to them, come on, you're never going to criticise your leader? Or do those explicit conversations not happen? No, they did. And, and they happened in a very short period of time, because remember, you know, the committee was, was obstructed in its work. And I'll come back to talk about how we were obstructed. But, but we had in a very short space of time to interview all the key principles in this, um, to ingather information, a lot of it not forthcoming, and in particular, the legal advice provided to the committee at the 11th hour, um, because the deputy first minister faced a motion of no confidence in him. That's the only reason we got released the legal advice. Um, some of it came after we'd interviewed the final witness, which was Nicola Sturgeon. Um, so we've been operating against the most impossible timescale. Um, we produced our report yesterday, the day before parliament breaks up, okay? Um, you know, and in order to do that, I mean, I, I am astonished we managed to do that, but in order to do that, we spent, um, you know, the last seven days with a meeting every day, in one day, three meetings, in order to sign that report off. So we were working right up against the wire and people were very direct with each other. You know, so, so people were bringing forward amendments, um, sharing them with each other in writing, other people not liking it, but, but that was the process we went through. And there were amendments from the SNP tabled in similar fashion, perhaps slightly less contentious, but that we agreed or disagreed, depending on the nature of the amendment. So, so what I'm describing to you is people working flat out. You know, the clerks to the committee, I take my hat off to them because how they, they, they managed to work their way through it is, is a source of constant amazement. But people were working flat out and it was a pressure cooker environment to ensure that we finished the job. So yes, there were some blunt conversations, but, but you know, I'm not going to fall out with those SNP committee members because we actually went through a lot together and shared many of the same frustrations. So when it's something like getting that information and it takes a vote of no confidence, 
being threatened in John Swinney to get that evidence to the committee. Did those SNP members share your frustration about that? Or did they say, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with this. It's fine. Well, let me say it was mixed. OK, so so this wasn't a typical politician's response. This, this wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first threat of a vote of no confidence. The parliament had voted by majority twice before to demand that the legal advice was released to the committee. OK, um, now, right at the beginning, if you go back in the mists of time, Nicola Sturgeon quite properly said, um, ask for anything, we will supply it, the Scottish Government will cooperate fully. She then recused herself quite properly, and then we had John Swinney, who proceeded to ignore everything she'd said and was absolutely obstructive to the committee. So, you know, there was delays in providing information, um, six months before we got the batch of information around the handling of complaints. Um, there were it, thousands of pages provided, he'll tell you that, uh, it makes great play of telling you that, but whole screens of them were completely wiped because they'd been redacted, you know? So we got blank sheets of paper in many cases. Um, and then the legal advice, which was so critical to understanding when and why they conceded the judicial review was simply not being provided to us. After two parliamentary votes, after the government ignoring us twice, they gave us a summary of the legal advice written by a senior civil servant that wasn't a lawyer, and they gave it to us in a reading room, so we couldn't use it externally, and then redacted all of it before it was out in the public domain. That, that's not a way to be transparent. So it then took the threat of a vote of no confidence, with the Greens supporting the rest of the, the parties in the parliament, for suddenly the information to become available. I have to say to you, Matt, and it's not all the information, key bits of legal advice and notes are simply missing. Um, one in particular, a meeting on the 13th of November between the first minister, the permanent secretary, a chief of staff, a cast of thousands, and external senior counsel. Now, they have a professional obligation to keep notes. Um, the lawyers working for the Scottish Government who were there have a professional obligation to keep notes. My goodness me, nobody can find any. It's extraordinary. I mean, it does beg the question, given the challenges you say you face, the redacted information, you also outlined problems with getting information out of civil servants at the start of your, uh, at the start of your report, the issues as you outlined them there. How can you actually, as a committee, reach a conclusion on the truth? Because we kept going and, and you know, who knows that there are things still to uncover, but we kept going and we were fairly determined to try and get as much information we could and draw conclusions from that information. What we have said in terms of wider reflections is that perhaps in future, um, if it's to be an inquiry of this nature, then they may want to consider it being a judge-led inquiry because the judge can go where committee members can't. It also brought up for me as somebody who's been in the parliament for 22 years, I've, I've never seen anything like this. I've also never seen the, the powers of the parliament to hold the executive to account so tested. And I want a review as to whether the parliament can indeed properly hold the executive to account in the future. So just on, the, on your report and what the remit of it was, and what you found, because it's been so difficult, I think, for people, because there was there were rumours about what you were going to find, then the Hamilton report comes out, then your report comes out. In your view, did Nicola Sturgeon breach the ministerial code? Um, I think she did. I think, I don't want to second-guess James Hamilton QC. He said she didn't. I accept his report. But in the evidence we took, um, there were examples where serious questions remain in my mind, okay? Now, you know, I'm not going to put my view above James Hamilton QC's. I, I, I acknowledge his report. But where the committee went to, in particular, was round about the meeting that she had on the 2nd of April with Alex Salmond. It was attended by other people as well. And at that meeting, um, she indicated to him that she would intervene at the appropriate time. In her written evidence to the committee and her oral evidence to the committee, she didn't accept that that was the case. 
Yes, in the room at the same time was Duncan Hamilton, who is a lawyer who acts for Alex Salmond. And um, they both recall quite clearly that she offered to intervene. Now, in fairness to her, she didn't actually go on to do it. Um, but that was a breach of the ministerial code. The other thing that, that, and the reason I say that there are issues of judgment here is, what I can't understand is if Alex Salmon's behavior was so bad, why did she keep meeting him? Why did she not just end the meeting on the 2nd of April and say, I'm not getting involved. This is a matter between you and the government and let due process take place. Why did she keep exchanging text messages, phone calls, meetings in her home, meetings at party conference, when clearly, you know, what he'd been accused of was, was fairly serious. And given her attitude to it, why did she keep meeting him? I, I mean, I just, on a human level, don't understand that. And the other thing I don't understand is why she didn't report it to the permanent secretary, as you are required to do. Now, again, James Hamilton cleared her of this. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to labour the point, um, but, but the it really poses questions of judgment for me. Nevertheless, she's been cleared of that. And James Hamilton, just so that people are clear, and, and let's presume that some people listening to this don't follow every twist and turn of Scottish politics, and even if they do, they might struggle with this some <laughs> stuff, because this is taking place... I had Mandy Rhodes on the show the other week, and she gave a brilliant explainer of so much of this stuff. But one of the concerns has been separation of powers and the, the cosy nature, perhaps, of, of elite Scottish politics. Just to be absolutely clear, James Hamilton QC is completely independent, and we don't mean <laughs> Scottish independence, we mean his integrity is not in doubt. Absolutely, his, his integrity is not in question at all. Um, he sits as one of a panel of um, investigators on the off chance that the First Minister is reported under the Ministerial Code. He in it investigates independently. My understanding is he used to be in charge of the prosecution service in, in Northern Ireland. So, you know, completely independent in, in, in Scotland. What his report also does say, because it's, it's interesting to um, look at the detail of it, is that, you know, he was not persuaded that um, one of the issues the committee raised and pursued wasn't correct. You know, so um, in this case, it was a meeting between a senior civil servant close to Nicola Sturgeon's office um, and the former chief of staff, Jeff Aberdeen, where it was alleged that the name of a complainant had been shared. Now, that's an extraordinary breach of confidentiality. And in any other workplace, it would be a dismissal offence. Um, the senior civil servants denied they ever did it. And of course, the committee's evidence and certainly the evidence taken by, by James Hamilton suggested that actually the claim that the name was released of the complainant was credible. So in many respects, some of the things he was saying mirrored what the committee was saying. The other thing that, that we felt frustrated by, and clearly he did too, is that he was unable to tell the whole story. Um, and equally, we were unable to tell the whole story because there are court orders in place that stop, you know, any question of jigsaw identification of people who may have been complainers or indeed were complainers in the criminal trial that subsequently followed. And so key issues could not be discussed um, either in his report or in the committee's report. But he's perfectly independent. I have no, absolutely no criticism of him whatsoever. But those things are really important on the not being able to identify complainants not just Absolutely. for this case but for future cases for the impact on on wider society of people being able to come forward and you can only conclude that if you had been a victim of this sort of thing and then you've watched this spectacle unfold it's very hard to imagine that this would make you more likely to step forward it just it's just been such a circus that you know, it would be difficult anyway to speak up. It, I can only, maybe I'm wrong, but you just look at it and go, this is just going to put people off even more. It, 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 it was horrible. It was a horrible process. Um, and I have to say, you know, right at the beginning, we asked the two women if they, they wanted to speak to the committee and they didn't particularly and absolutely respected that. Um, so I was very pleased that they offered to speak to the committee at the very end. Um, and I have to say, having listened to 
um, hours of evidence from civil servants who were dancing on the head of a pin, um, were forgetful, who had to correct their evidence, to listening to two very polished politicians, um, you know, telling you what they wanted to tell you, to hear the two voices of the women was very refreshing. It was very brave of them. They were very direct and they absolutely went to the heart of what this was all about, which is ensuring that there is a robust mechanism in place to protect women in the future. So, you know, I'm really grateful to them for doing it, but, you know, unfortunately, evidence taken in private was then leaked into the public domain. And that, that was just horrifying for them. Um, and it's a matter of huge regret that somebody on the committee chose to do that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I absolutely get how difficult it is for the two women involved, but actually for women coming forward in general. That's why I hope that the government take on board the recommendations that the committee made, which were serious recommendations about the type of policy, the type of support that should be there in future for women to come forward. I mean, there's only 10 of you or so on that committee. So one of you leaked that information. As a committee, have you had that discussion? No, the committee finished when it finished its report on last Thursday evening. I think we were, we were into the small hours of, of uh, the morning, um, finishing the report and the leak happened the weekend after. I mean, it, it, it was shameful. You know, as a woman, I cannot stand that kind of approach um, at all. I just think it, it, it was bad for the women involved. Who knows what the motivation was for doing so? But, you know, women have rightly, in my view, made a complaint to the parliament. But I'm not sure if there's a committee WhatsApp group, but there must have been a, a, a chat somewhere where someone said, Jackie, what's going on here? No, there isn't a committee WhatsApp group. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. The committee paid an interest to other people's WhatsApp messages, but no, the committee itself didn't have a WhatsApp group. That was probably going too far. But yeah, I mean, it, no, nobody understood it. I mean, it, don't get me wrong, the, the, the tensions, you know, were high, not, not necessarily just in the committee, but roundabout, you know, every single day there was a new twist and turn. You know, every single day, the two principals were briefing. So it, it, it wasn't committee members. Sometimes I'm sure there were people um, close to Alex Salmond who would be briefing in the press. And other times people close to Nicola Sturgeon and special advisors would be briefing in the press. And the committee got caught up in the crossfire of it, you know, which is why I'm keen to kind of, you know, emphasize the fact that so much of the report was unanimous and the government cannot shirk from following those recommendations. They may not like the ones that we made about the Ministerial Code and Nicola Sturgeon. That's fair enough. But the other recommendations actually are recommendations of substance that we all agreed with. How difficult is it to scrutinise this sort of thing effectively in this sort of spotlight when you're being so careful to bear in mind the identity and the experience of the complainants? Is there, any, is there any way in which that does prevent you from being as perhaps robust as you might be in other inquiries? Yeah, I mean, there the, the, the were witnesses that we simply couldn't interview. We simply couldn't interview them because of the risk of jigsaw identification. You know, this is a new area of law. Um, there isn't a lot of case law, but we had the ridiculous example of Alex Salmon putting in evidence um, for the ministerial code part of our review, sharing that evidence with the spectator, the spectator putting it up on its website, um, in plain view of everybody, being invited by the Crown Office to redact one paragraph, I think, which they then did and put it back up. And then the Crown Office saying to the Parliament, well, you can't publish Alex Salmon's um, version because it'll contribute to jigsaw identification and you need to redact all of this but because the spectator's up there, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, it, it's, it's absurd. So we need clarity around about the law. We need to make sure it's robust to protect victims, um, you know, in any of these situations. But the interpretation of the law made for a bit of nonsense during the committee's inquiry. So, so that needs looked at. I also think, you know, we do not have the same power in Scotland as parliamentary committees down south. Um, we don't operate on the basis of privilege either. 
Um, so, you know, individual members can be can be challenged for their, their comments in the chamber and in committee. Um, so, you know, it is a different environment and you, you do feel quite constrained. I have no problem being careful to ensure that the women's identities are absolutely protected. But it did prevent us from exploring some areas um, and it prevented James Hamilton from doing so too, which is deeply frustrating. Is there any other sort of model or way of doing it where you could have heard evidence that wouldn't have led to jigsaw identification and would have allowed you to reach conclusions that you put have you could have put in the public domain or or is it just and it's right that those rights are, are protected and valued is there just sort of no way around that problem i think some people have suggested that perhaps if it was a judge-led inquiry rather than a parliamentary inquiry then the judge would have been able to look at everything right absolutely everything understand the whole story and then choose to keep out bits that might identify people whereas we were hampered from the beginning so the reality is you know in a situation like this then a judge-led inquiry is something that perhaps in sensitive cases like this should be considered for the future hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On the politics of it then, the, the, the focus was, was huge. You've got probably more people watching proceedings live on the Scottish Parliament website than you've ever had before. My Twitter feed, and maybe that's just a sign of who I follow, was the, the every every comma coming out of that committee was was being followed by you know the leading reports of the UK and Scotland and, and members of the public following it. When you're in that committee yourself, and obviously you were seen as arguably the star turn, if that's I mean that even that given the context in which all this is happening, it's it's grim to even kind of say that people did well or did badly, but you know what I mean, that, that you were seen as a, as a competent interrogator. Do you have any sense when, do you feel that pressure on your shoulders? Do you feel that spotlight or does it just feel like any other day? No, you, you, you do feel as if you want to do a good job. And actually my approach to this um, was I was not showing anybody any fear or favour. I mean, I was treating everybody the same. I would grill them. I would get what I think, um, you know, they wanted to say out of them, but I would also test some of the, the things that, that have been said. So, for example, um, you know, the, there was a lot of kind of stuff swirling around about how this was a conspiracy. OK, so I wanted to test that to destruction um, and therefore would go after witnesses politely, of course, um, to try and find out if any of that was true. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm not a lawyer by trade. Um, some people say I honed my skills on my daughter, <laughs> interrogating her as she was growing up. You know, she, she would hate this. But, but, but the reality is, you know, you need to follow what people are saying to you to try and find out what lies behind it. That's all I ever sought to do was find out, you know, what are they not telling me? What do I need to know that actually they don't want me to know that needs to come out into the public domain? So, you know, I would be unfailingly polite. I hope people would, 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 would think, um, but I wouldn't necessarily let people off the hook. I don't see the point of, of daft questions um, wasting everybody's time. The one good thing is my dining room is now not covered with papers because my dining room table was awash with, with all these papers with colour-coded tabs, so I could keep an eye out on what was going on with particular issues. That is now all cleared away. Thank goodness for that. You raised the issue of daft questions. There were times when watching hours and hours of these proceedings where perhaps other members of the committee weren't as rigorous as you were or handled the questioning in a different way. I mean, at times, we're used, obviously, now, every political party has this. Every government has this. When you watch Prime Minister's questions, 
there's always a few patsy questions on the Tory backbenchers. Again, will the Prime Minister agree with me that this is the greatest government of all time? And will he meet with some of my constituents to let them know as well? So we're used to that. When it's a committee of such gravity, it did look a bit odd when it perhaps felt like, maybe I'm being unfair, certain members might be bowling under arm or not asking questions that were difficult as the ones you were asking. I mean, did that ever, did you ever say to other members of the committee, come on, that just looks ludicrous. Or do you just think, I'll let them get on with what they're doing. I need to make my, make sure my questions work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not going to criticise other members of the, the committee. Um, we went through hell together. Um, you know, so if some chose to ask easier questions than others, then I'm not going to criticise them for, for doing that. Um, I took my job seriously. And therefore, whoever came before us was, was going to get a grilling from me, whoever they were. Um, and, and that was the approach I took, because I think, you know, again, we need to get to a place where we understand what went wrong and how we fix it. And so my job wasn't to be, you know, a patsy to anybody. And did you find it hard to concentrate? I mean, you're in there for hours. Sometimes the nature of some of the other questions was, you know, your mind's going to wander. And then all of a sudden, Jackie Bailey, you're up and you've now got to kind of turn it on. Was that an issue or not? Or am I overthinking perhaps the just what it's like to be in a room all day for eight hours? No, no, it, it is exhausting. It is exhausting to not just physically be in the room, but mentally to be switched on all the time, you know, and the, there are times where um, you let your colleagues lead the questioning in certain areas. So you can think about your questions and think about your follow up. So you're not having to be focused on every single word that, that is being uttered. So, for example, I took less of an interest in the policy development side of things because um, it was clear what, what had gone wrong. And I was much more interested in the judicial review and the ministerial code side of things. So, you know, most of my questioning latterly was on those two, two elements of it. So you can't conceivably cover everything, but, but actually committee members took um, different questions covering different areas. So collectively, we, we, we worked as a team. And do you carve that out prior? Do you say, right, I'll take the ministerial code stuff, why don't you ask about that? You ask this so that we don't duplicate. Yeah, there are pre-meetings and, and the convener kind of, you know, checks where people are going in terms of lines of questioning. Um, we are briefed very well by both the Parliament clerks and the Scottish Parliament Information Centre. And we have voluminous amounts of, of evidence that, that, that we go through. So, yeah, I mean, people took different interests. The danger with that, sometimes as you can be overbriefed is you lose sight of what the basic stuff is you're meant to be quite you know i just i've there's so many people who haven't even worked in politics but can, but can empathize with that of leading up to a presentation or a job interview or something you just feel like you've got all this stuff as you say your dining room tables just covered in this stuff you're being briefed making those key decisions on those four or five questions that you're gonna take itself is it in an art is is how do you narrow it down to the things you're going to focus on it, simply because you know you, you're not going to be in there for 10 hours so you you can't hold the show you need to decide what are the most important things that you want answers to um you know and these are the things that are potentially the most contested okay um so so you have to be disciplined and you have to kind of acknowledge that some of your colleagues will be interested in the same territory. So it's how you slip in behind them, how you don't duplicate questions, or actually sometimes how you deliberately duplicate questions because you're not convinced about the answer you got the first time, okay? Um, and that's a device we, we use quite often. So I was content more often than not to go last because I would do a sweeping up job and I would also ask questions that I think you know, I'm sorry, but your first answer was a bit rubbish, you know, so let me give you a second chance to get it right, you know. So so I was quite content to play that role just because it, I was relaxed about it, you know. So, um, yeah, as colleagues, we all have different strengths and we all found them pretty quickly and worked together. But would other colleagues say, hang on, you're not going last again. I know what you're up to, Jackie. You're, you're going to take all this thing, you're going to try and catch the First Minister out, and don't let her go last. 
quite the reverse. People like to go first so that they're the ones with the questions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They want to be the ones who ask the difficult questions first. So there wasn't a cue to come last. Right? Everybody was falling over themselves to ask the difficult questions first. Whereas I was quite content to, you know, just wait, just bide your time. They'll come to you eventually. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to go last. The dynamic between the First Minister and you was really interesting because, and maybe I'm wrong, but were you the only member of the committee that she then addressed via the convener? It was very odd that she felt like she dealt with everyone else directly, but she would refer to Jackie Bailey and look look on the other side of the room. What was that about? It's always been like that. It, I mean, it take me too long to explain the history, but, but Nicola Sturgeon and I came into the Parliament at the same time. We're, we're both the class of 99. Um, I shadowed her when she was health secretary and, you know, I mean, I'm very direct. I go chasing after um, issues. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's just how I do my politics. I care passionately about things, so I will do my best to hold the government to account. Um, I'm not sure she, she, she has liked me since then. Um, I have to say I bear her no ill will, but because of the position she occupied, my job is to interrogate. My job as the opposition is to challenge. So I will do that to the very best of my ability. Um, clearly she doesn't like it, and I, I can only apologize for that. Um, but, but I do genuinely say to you, it is not personal, not what, at all. What I found most interesting about it was that for her, a lot of her brand is that she's a grown up and she's an adult, she's a pragmatist and she's a proper leader and all stuff like that and yet allows herself in a committee on telly to demonstrate that actually she doesn't like you, or that's the impression it gives, to, to give the impression that there's an issue with a member of the committee, I thought was a really strange thing, rather than, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I was spoiled working for the Labour Party when Tony Blair was leader, but he was always very charming with people, even people that weren't very nice to him, and you think, if in doubt, always do that. Don't let it show when you're you know, maybe not as keen on a member of a committee or that there's something there or you want to give the impression. I just thought it was a real... I just thought, I wonder if she decided to do that before she went in or whether that was just... She couldn't help herself. That, that, that... I, I don't think it's a deliberate decision. I think that's her reaction to me, full stop, right? And, you know, I, I think I'm very charming. I'm very personable. Um, I want to be good at my job. You know, I want to challenge as the opposition should because I want the government of Scotland of whatever political strength that is to be the very best it can be. And sometimes the opposition holding the government to account is what is required. I do not deal with it personally at all. Um, you know, life is too short for that, but I am sorry if other people don't like the fact that I get under their skin. I'm doing my job. Is there any part of you because part of the narrative, and there's so many narratives about this, and everyone has their own take on it, is some people will say, perhaps more casual observers, this is a woman being held to account for the behaviour of a man. And that, that, you know, we see this around the world, and that's what it feels like to a lot of people. Can you see how people reach that conclusion? Absolutely. And I would never, ever ask for a woman to apologise for a man's actions. Never would I do that. But, but what I can't get over here is that actually this isn't about man. This is about two women, female civil servants, came forward, complained about harassment and have been comprehensively let down, you know? And, and three years on, their issues haven't been addressed. Um, and so for me, it's always been about them. Um, it, the first minister has responsibilities. The former first minister had his responsibilities. Um, there is clearly a deep division between the two of them. I mean, I described it earlier as a divorce. It, it, it just feels like that. It's nasty. It's antagonistic. Um, and, you know, it's creating divisions and ruptures in the SNP at a time where they're facing an election. It's, it's the worst possible time. You cannot obviously ignore that drama that's going on. But the reality is the committee had a clear remit. The committee has a job to do. And, you know, we discharged it, I think, to the very best of our ability, and we delivered a report on time before Parliament rose. I never thought we would actually make this day, but we've done it. And that is the thing. 
that I want the government to take seriously. And that is the conclusions are really important for for the reasons that we've we've discussed. That in future it's about justice for people who are victims. Um, you are also human beings, all on that committee, and that's what's so interesting about this stuff. Is even as someone who used to work in politics, you read this stuff and it, it, you you forget, or not that you forget, but perhaps it's not the it's not at the forefront of your mind that these are all individuals. That every single one of you on a committee, your life has just been defined by this for the past few months. This is everything you've been thinking about when you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning. Your dining room's been taken over by it. There must be a, a in a way, and I know that in the sense of, and I feel bad calling it a story, but obviously there, there are more things to happen given the announcement that we talked about at the start about Alex and potentially taking legal action against other people. The, just as concluding such an important piece of work just must be a huge relief. Oh, it's, it's an enormous relief. Okay, an enormous relief because we, we were up against the wire. You know, I have um, not turned my attention to my election campaign. Um, I've not seen, you know, family, well, friends either, but that's because of lockdown. You know, I've not even um, been able to talk to people because I just simply have not had time. This has been all consuming. Um, so I, I would like to say that, that, that I will miss it. But honestly, I won't. I want. I want to reclaim my life. I want to get on with politics. And the problem is, you know, as as politicians, um, you look at social media, you look at Twitter and Facebook, and you know, you are either being abused by people who think that you're being too aggressive, not doing, you're doing your job too well, um, and you're, you're being praised by others. And actually, it is just horrible to have that as an echo chamber all the time. It's relentless. And just to be absolutely clear on, on the crucial conclusion about the ministerial code, your committee concluded that the first minister did breach the code, but what, by mistake? Well, we, we, we concluded that she did breach the code. Um, the, the actual text of the ministerial code said that she knowingly breached it. That's the terminology. We didn't include knowingly um, because some of the committee members weren't comfortable with that language. Um, so we concluded that on that point, she breached the code. Would you, have, um, would you, if it was up to you, would you have included the word knowingly? To, to, to be honest, we, we'd said that it's for James Hamilton to consider the ministerial code, and I stand by that. But the committee wanted to make observations, um, and you know, one of my colleagues brought forward this suggestion. It's actually backed up by the evidence that we considered. So I had no problem supporting it because it was accurate, you know. Um, but having said that James Hamilton should consider it, I'm content to rest there. But nevertheless, what we wanted to do was reflect everything that, that we'd seen and heard and could draw a conclusion to. Hamilton concludes that the First Minister didn't breach the code, but he uses a similar form of words to you, doesn't he, that it's that it's for the Scottish Parliament to decide. So it feels like yes. both committees have passed it on to each other. He did say that. He did say that. I thought that that, that was quite fun as to whether um, the First Minister had misled the, the Scottish Parliament or not. Um, do you know, it, it, I think he's reported now. I think people have moved on. Well, certainly the Parliament's moved on. I'm not sure Alex Salmond has yet moved on, given the announcement we, we discussed. Um, but, you know, for me, I want I want people to be held to account for this. I genuinely do because of the, the catastrophic failure in the Scottish government's handling of, of all of this, whether it was a policy development, whether it's complaints handling, whether it was even the judicial review that they kept going and kept going when it should have been conceded earlier. I mean, the embarrassment of the Scottish government not handing over information to the highest civil court in Scotland. I mean, it's unthinkable. All of that was coordinated by the permanent secretary, Leslie Evans. And yet nobody has taken responsibility for this. There've been no resignations, no sackings, nothing. And yet everybody agrees it's such a catastrophic failure. So, so the bit that's missing for me is if they take the committee's reports and recommendations seriously, the unanimous ones, then they can do nothing 
I think, but ask Leslie Evans to consider her position. Yet, as of today, they're not doing that. And I just don't understand that. In the immediate aftermath of the publication of these reports, the headlines were, you know, committee finds Sturgeon misleads Parliament, then it's like Sturgeon cleared, and that felt like the Hamilton one, I guess, feels like a bigger one because he's completely apolitical. Well, he's not, he can't be completely apolitical, but he's 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 not party political. He's as independent as you can get. He's got that legal element to him. So to the lay observer, they might say, well, you know, your committee is full of politicians, so you're all going to find along party grounds. Let's listen to what this independent bloke says. And he says she's in the clear, so we're going to believe him. Um, it, there are, I think, detailed messages in both reports that aren't in the headlines. So, you know, James Hamilton said he was prevented from telling the whole story, okay? Um, he, you could see his frustration at things being uh, redacted or withheld. Um, he also reaches some of the conclusions that the committee reached about uh, the name of complainers being shared inappropriately. Um, he talks about special advisors, perhaps, being made to conform to the ministerial code in a way that they are currently, which I thought was an interesting observation. Um, so, you know, he makes a number of these and the committee report looks at areas that he didn't look at. So on the policy development, the complaints handling, the judicial review, um, he actually didn't look at any of those. And in those, the Scottish government comprehensively failed. Now, at the end of the day, you know, I want them to fix it, but I want somebody to take responsibility too. You know, call me old fashioned, but if you make a mistake, you don't just apologize for it. If it's serious enough, there are consequences, you know, and nobody but nobody, you know, has had to deal with any consequences except for the two women that have been failed in all of this. So it looks, feels like at the moment, the first minister is effectively off the hook. She's been exonerated by this independent guy that's the end of the matter. We all know politics doesn't always work like that. And you may have a, a, an initial outcome that is perceived as a victory, is framed as a victory, where you feel huge relief. Obviously, so much of this has been about the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, individually. Will this cost her her job or not? And that narrative of the whole week, in a way, I guess, is rather unhelpful because then it all becomes about this zero-sum game about does she stay, does she go? And it, it's all hangs on his report. And she even said afterwards, you know, had he found I'd breached the code, I would have gone. Now, obviously she wasn't saying that before he published the report. That's <laughs> you politics. noticed. That's, that's <laughs> politics for you. But nevertheless, this whole thing in the last few days basically got narrowed down to is Sturgeon guilty or innocent? And for so many reasons, that just can't be a helpful way to view this whole thing. No, it's, it's not a helpful framing. I understand why commentators would do that because it gives you a simple story that people can understand, but actually it's much more complex than whether the First Minister should go or not, or whether the, the drama that's a, a occurring between her and Alex Salmond um, is, is what the committee are looking at, because they're not. The reality is that we need to get the procedure for dealing with harassment complaints correct. And in order to do that, we need to understand what went wrong, we need to understand, you know, why the Scottish government, um, you know, ended up in the court of session, losing a judicial review, costing the taxpayer more than half a million pounds, um, when something, you know, should have been done correctly right at the beginning that might have seen justice for these two women. So, yeah, the, the, the headlines um, are more sensational than are actually helpful because the job of work that the committee had to do, which they did discharge, um, I think reasonably well, was make sure that this doesn't happen again. And with all the focus on Nicola Sturgeon, that's partly because she has been all conquering and within and without, inside and outside the party, by far the most popular politician in Scotland, queen of all she surveys, no one it seems can lay a glove on her. These elections, it looks like at the moment, will confirm that. And it will only be Scotland's first prefer you know, preferential vote system that will prevent what would in Westminster be an astounding landslide. Isn't part of the problem that 
a lot of people got very excited that effectively out of nowhere, there was an opportunity to, to cut down this, this formidable politician in her prime. And some people perhaps got a bit too overexcited about whether that was possible or not. Well, to be honest with you, that, that, that wasn't my motivation. I know you might find that hard to believe, but, but actually what this was, was the former first minister, Alex Salmond, the same party as Nicola Sturgeon, his protege, he was the one that was having that battle with her. You know, the pair of them were fighting. It wasn't the opposition that, that dreamt this up. Um, we were observers, if you like, to what is a, a battle royal between two former friends. And Scotland's a small place. And, you know, it, it, it was just extraordinary. And it continues. It continues. And that's the thing that, that, that is fascinating. Now, you know, this week we had the motion of no confidence in Nicola Sturgeon from the Conservatives. And I have to say, it, there was a piece of political opportunism there because what they'd done was signaled their intention to table one before she'd even appeared at the committee to give evidence, before, you know, the Hamilton uh, inquiry had reported, before the committee report was out. They just saw an opportunity and shamelessly went for it. And that kind of cheap game playing, you know, just, it, it, nobody could have supported it. You know, even if we think that, that she was guilty, which Hamilton found that she wasn't, you couldn't have supported the Tories because they were just about playing games. They weren't being serious politicians. And for them, it had more to do with the election than actually getting to the truth of anything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is a, a, a febrile time anytime you get near an election. Um, but, you know, I would have much rather concluded the committee's work months ago. Perhaps had the Scottish government not obstructed us, we could have done that instead of this drama at the last minute. But there you go. As you say, these elections are, are happening in May during a pandemic. Obviously, more people are getting vaccinated, which is great. So hopefully people can turn out and vote. It's been a constant complaint of mine on this show in recent weeks that I can't believe there isn't a national postal vote drive going on i can't believe that people are going to feel comfortable even if they've had the jab going into polling stations and we struggle anyway those of us who care about getting voters turn out we struggle to get people to vote in general elections let alone the sorts of elections we're having across the uk in may putting that one side for a second do you get any sense from whatever polling you've been able to do or whatever voter contact you've been able to do presumably over the phone or even online that this is going to be an issue in this election? Um, no, not specifically, partly because of the complexity of it, okay? So I, it is not raised on the, the, I was going to say the doorstep, it's not raised on the phone line with me. Um, but, but certainly what is, is the divisions within the SNP. You know, this feeling that something's not quite right. This fighting between former friends and allies um, has obviously spilled over into the public domain. Um, so the, there's lots of kind of unease about that. Um, and I think what's going on, and certainly in my community, they care about recovery, recovery after COVID. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about the economy. They're worried about the NHS. Some of them have been waiting, not just the whole of last year, but they were waiting before that, before COVID was a thing. Um, so all of these things, education recovery, that's what people are talking about. That's what they care about. Now, yesterday, as well as the committee's report, um, I think in the Hamilton report, um, out comes the independence white paper, uh, promising a second independence referendum um, within the year. And you, you kind of think, do you know, that's not a priority just now, especially when people, some have lost their lives in the pandemic, you know, people have lost loved ones. Um, they are really genuinely worried. And as you say, some might not come out and vote, because they're scared of what, what might happen. Um, so, you know, for all those reasons, I just think that's just the wrong priority. And that's what people are telling me. They want a COVID recovery parliament. And our new leader, Anas Sawa, um, is doing a wonderful job, right? Um, in fact, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but his popularity in Scotland um, is higher than Keir Starmer's, okay? Um, and Keir Starmer's is very good. Okay, but, but Anas has hit the ground running as our new leader, um, and he is saying the absolute priority for the Labour Party is a recovery parliament. 
That's what the country needs, not more division and, you know, constitutional wrangling. It needs us to be unified and looking towards the future and providing a vision for the future. And that's exactly what he's doing. I know this is really difficult, but as you've invoked the future, and it's really difficult when you're in the middle of all this stuff and there's an election on and there's a pandemic. But what do you think the legacy of, of all this will be, of the, the Scottish government's handling of those harassment complaints, of the committee's work, of the Hamilton inquiry, taken as a whole? Trying to, And I know this is so difficult because life is chaotic, but are, are there any shreds of hope? Can you say that actually in future you think things would be done better, that from now on, if there is a complaint against a Scottish government minister, things would be done more positively in the victim's interest? I think if the Scottish government is serious about looking at the recommendations in our report, if they are serious about learning lessons, then I believe it can be better in the future for civil servants coming forward. I also hope this will ensure that ministers themselves operate to the highest possible standards. And there is no reason for civil servants to come forward in the future. You know, I hope that that also is something that comes out of the report. But what I would also want us to look at is the extent to which um, the parliament has sufficient power to hold the government to account, the extent to which, for example, um, the role of the Lord Advocate sitting both as a cabinet minister, but also the head of our um, justice system, whether that works. You know, so there are wider lessons to learn, but the central one is that, that no woman should feel um, you know, any hesitation about coming forward in the future because there will be a robust policy, there will be an independent investigation and there will be support in place for them to do so. And finally, um, the future of your dining room table, are you going to celebrate by, by cooking a, a slap-up feast now that you've got that table back? I might do that, but but at the moment, nobody can really come and join me. Sorry, that's the division bell. <laughs> if you wait, it'll stop in a minute. It sounds like um, there's going to be a Scott Rail announcement. <laughs> sort of like Sometimes an old electronic. Sometimes voices too. <laughs> this is the 1347 from oh, Edinburgh Waverley. It's still going. It's still going. I've been, I've been slipped, so I don't need to rush anywhere, but... It's still going. It's. Uh, I'll just let listeners enjoy it because this is a rare uh, insight <laughs> into the realities of being an MSP. People Hello. might be familiar with the division bells in Westminster. Are, are yeah. almost like a fire alarm, like an old-fashioned ringing bell, uh -huh. which uh -huh. gives it a real really sense good. of urgency. That's you know well, what that sounds more like you've walked into a news agent. It's the kind of. <laughs> da -da. <laughs> Feel like it's when, only two school children when, at a time. I know. When you sit here late at night, right, as I as I often do because of the volume of work, and this disembodied voice suddenly shouts at you, everything else is silent, the phones have stopped, you know, and the building is closing in five minutes, and you're like, oh, God, frightens the life out of you. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I have rediscovered my dining room table. I have an election to fight, um, and hopefully when restrictions are lifted, then, you know, everybody can come round and eat from my dining room table. But until that happens, I'm afraid, you know, that's that's going to be some time yet. But that's the problem now. Your dining room table is going to be covered in election leaflets and <laughs> bundles and whatever else, rosettes. <laughs> Absolutely. Just one load fun. of paper being replaced with another. <laughs> yes, but I'm going to enjoy the second more than I did the first. <laughs> Jackie, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back on. No problem, thank you. Well, there you go, Jackie Bailey. Now you know what it's like to sit on a parliamentary committee, what it does to your life, the things that it takes over, and all the considerations that go into that, the, the weight of the responsibility, the things you have to bear in mind, the, the temptations you mustn't succumb to, and the importance of doing your job to the very best of your ability. Um, not just for the complainants so that they get justice, but for a functioning, healthy democracy. And that is uh, that is really important. Uh, and Jackie is a really impressive talker about these things. And it was great to have her back on the show. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any feedback. 
any observations, any guest suggestions are always very welcome. And just any, without wanting to sound too whimsical about it, anything that occurs to you about other guests or any stories you might have about them. Uh, Stuart got in touch to say that he will be voting in person in this year's elections in May. As always, I've put in a link to where you can register to vote by post because we are having these elections. I know it's in May. The world may feel different then. The UK may feel different then. We are still locked down at this point because of a lethal virus. So register to vote by post just in case. I think that's what I've done. But um, <laughs> it's not for me to advise you on how to lead your life. Uh, but Stuart's going to be voting in person. And he says, P.S. In the Carwin Jones episode, he spoke about meeting Welsh school children while he was on holiday in Iceland with his wife. My son was one of those children and they were on a school geography trip. Excellent, Stuart. That is the sort of message I love. So, have you met a previous guest of the political party? Has your child met a previous guest of a political party? Has your child met a previous guest of the political party whilst abroad in Iceland on a school geography trip? If there's anyone else that fits that brief, I will be amazed. But by all means, drop us a line, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And it doesn't just have to be on guest suggestions specific individuals you might just say oh what about a local authority chief exec or someone who ran the av campaign or just anything like that anything you think i might have missed international guests perhaps that when you look at the back catalogue you think oh i think you're missing out a type of person as well as an individual um but i realize this is becoming homework heavy you've got these various reports to read should you wish and you've got to email me and of course you have to leave an iTunes review because that means that other people find the podcast, which means mo more people get to listen to this wonderful content about really long parliamentary reports and proceedings. I shall leave it there for now. I really do hope you're well. I hope that the improving weather, if you're listening in the UK, the weather is improving, as you will know. If you listen elsewhere, I hope the weather's improving where you are and that you're all getting your jabs soon and uh, that hopefully you'll be able to see your loved ones. Um, so have a wonderful time in between now and the next episode. I've got some amazing guests lined up. I never like to announce them in advance, just in case, but my word, we've got some corkers coming up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And as promised about a minute ago, I really will leave it there. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.